Hi, this is Brian. And this is Jay. Welcome to The Heart of the Matter, a show where we talk to interesting people about their work, um, what drives them, and uh, generally sort of get to know them. Today, our guest is MCK, uh, the founder of a communication modality uh, called Bounce, and also the host of a Sunday sort of um, exchange called 3PW, Three People Walking, uh, which has been something that I've participated in over the past couple months. Welcome, MCK. Hey, glad to be here. Um, yeah, so uh, 3PW, uh, that's sort of the most recent context we're coming from. Um, it stands for Three People Walking. Um, let's just, uh, let's say what it is first, just because that's just a little set the context of who you are and, and the weird things you do. Yeah, thanks. So uh, do, why don't you say what it is first, and then we'll see how you do. Um, if I've done a good job of, you know, articulating the values and, you know, what it's all about, because you've been there quite a few times. So yeah, you start and then I'll, I'll follow up. Okay. Uh, so 3PW is, 3PW is a platform for mostly strangers, but uh, originally strangers, to share stories from their lives or... Um, either sort of stories of things that have happened or things that they've been thinking about um, and uh, take questions from people, from anyone. Um, so short stories under five minutes and questions of two mi under two minutes um, and basically share aspects of themselves. And the responses from people can't be statements. They, they're not intended to be sort of like commentaries or statements. They're intended to exclusively be questions. So uh, it positions... Uh, each person that wants to share can share, and then the uh, other people can ask them questions. Um, but it is not meant to be sort of a debate. It's not meant to be sort of a discussion. It's an opportunity for sharing and then diving deep. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, great job. Uh, I think the way that I usually describe it is it's a, it's a fun sharing event. Um, people come together, um, and they share five minutes or less about something that you know they've been thinking about, that, that trying to kind of narrow it down to an experience that they've had or um, something that they've learned or kind of like having a bit of a takeaway from that. Um, and, you know, by being able to do that within five minutes or less, um, we kind of keep moving, giving everybody an opportunity to share. It's, it's kind of just the opportunity for normal people to share our everyday wisdom with each other. Because a lot of times, you know, we have things that are coming up just even over the course of our weeks. Um, that are really interesting to share with others. You know, the stuff that we consume, the things that are happening to us. Um, and I really think um, it epitomizes one of my favorite pieces of Chinese wisdom, which is San Ren Xing Bi or Shi Yan, or when three people go walking, my teacher must be there. And I think it's this beautiful idea that we can always be learning from anyone when we're with them. And, you know, that's basically the, the crux of this oh, two hours that we spend together. Was the idea behind this that if there's three people, it's usually because a teacher has two students following him in so, Chinese literature and such? So my understanding, and uh, Brian is much more literate in Chinese literature than I am, um, but three is just the idea of a group of people. Mm -hmm. It's a Confucian saying, um, but it's just the idea of a group of people being together. So three doesn't necessarily mean three. I mean, we're three right now. Hopefully we'll have a chance to learn something from each other. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but within a group of people, um, and essentially, I think breaking it down to its core, it's just when you're with others, others have an opportunity to teach you. You have an op you actually, you have an opportunity to learn from others, you know, not necessarily like the responsibility of another to teach you, but um, the responsibility of you maybe to go and say, hey, like, how can I learn something more from this person? You know, you know so for example, you know, in advance of this, um, you know, this conversation, I went through and I listened to at least a segment from every show. Okay, great. And I went and I went and I checked out your website. And I checked out your Instagram, Jay, because you know Brian and I, of course, have known each other for some time, um, and spend time, you know, pretty regularly now um, on a weekly basis. Um, but I didn't really know anything about you. And to be in the room with you, I thought that if I had the opportunity to ask questions, you know, I would might want to think about you know what I would want to ask about you. So um, I think the approach that I take to my life is anytime I'm with somebody, I want to just know as much about them as I can, because I know if I learn more about them, then I probably have a chance to learn more about myself too. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really a special thing, um, you know, about 3BW is every week by hearing everyone's everyday wisdom, um, you get a chance to uh, go deeper on stuff that um, you wouldn't necessarily have a chance to hear 
and then realize that, you know, funnily enough, it probably connects to your life in some way, shape or form. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Can I push a bit on this on why do you think it starts with a minimum, say, of three, that two people in a conversation, maybe, is it a different kind of conversation that happens when there's three compared to two? So, so again, I think it's just a metaphor for a group. Um, you know, I think two people is totally cool. I agree with you. You know, you can get a lot in a two-person conversation, but 5,000 years of history, man, can't knock it. <laughs> no, I'm for sure. I think, I think yeah, there is something. <laughs> yeah. Even in you know, this, this podcast format that we really went in with an intention that if it was just like one interviewer and one guest, it becomes this, you know, just, yeah, like I think like a one channel dialogue. Mm-hmm. Bring three and it's suddenly, you know, group conversation mm-hmm. where at some points you're just listening and you're learning and something is synthesizing and then you bring something unique. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're just two, you have to respond immediately once the other person stops talking. So mm-hmm. sometimes I think uh, it's interesting with a little larger group, but there's this probably a good size limit. Maybe you get over eight and it becomes chaos. You can't really have just mm-hmm. one conversation. So, mm-hmm. and I'm sure over thousands of years, they've just kind of figured out a nice format for Three is the, three is the magic number, apparently. Yeah. yeah how do you pass on <laughs> wisdom you yeah. know, that actually can like become sticky, that actually can like pa- get passed on instead of you know, going over yeah. people's heads? So, well, what so, I think. Oh, oh, go ahead. Well, just also connected to that. I mean, there was one one of your recent guests uh, that I was listening to. I think, you know, they said, you know, wow, it was really amazing the the experience that they had, you know, through the course of this conversation with you. And it didn't feel like it was sort of like two on one. It felt like it was a three person thing. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, I think I felt that listening through the episodes and I think it's a real testament to the way that you both work well together and also allowing the space both for each other and for everybody to be, everybody to be together in this way. And yeah, there is something special, um, you know, I think about that. I think it comes from the fact that Jay and I don't agree on anything. So we are always <laughs> challenging each other to uh, yeah. advance, advance each other's ideas. Right. But, um, you know, on the, uh, on the subject of sort of understanding who you're speaking to mm-hmm. um, and sort of diving a little bit more into the personalities and the histories, um, mm-hmm. I'm curious to kind of dive into yours. Um, if you don't mind, like, give us like the, uh, you know, 30 second biography of what led you to becoming so familiar with China and investing so much of your time and your professional life in China? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, growing up in a small town in upstate New York, um, there wasn't a lot of uh, diversity that I really felt like I was exposed to. You know, I felt like here I am in a small town and I wanted to see the world. I wanted to meet the people. I wanted to hear about their stories. And, you know, that led me to international relations as a degree. And um, when I went to school, um, I basically had to take a language. And since I kind of, French wasn't my friend, um, didn't really make it happen with French. I thought, well, I better, better not do another romance language because I might screw that up. So um, what else could I do? And the options were Japanese, Chinese, and Swedish. And so I kind of just, you know, whatever, Chinese, it sounds kind of weird. Um, you know, writing is like an art project, you know, talking is like singing. And maybe that's like a cool thing that I can try because it's weird enough and I'm pretty weird. So, I mean, you, you introduced me as being weird. So just wanted to keep on that theme, but that theme started quite a long time ago. So, uh, did you have uh, a specific set of thoughts as to why not Japanese at that time? Cause I think you and I are almost exactly yeah. the same age. You're th- 34? 38. Oh, you're 38. You're a bit older than I am. So when I was choosing my foreign language, I also was coming from two years of French in high school mm-hmm. with a kind of like bad taste in my mouth. I don't think I'd placed into French too in the co- at the college level. Um, and I was basically determined to kind of open the world into non-European uh, languages and kind mm-hmm. of wanted to branch out. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was... Uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, Japanese, uh, maybe Turkish, like a couple other foreign languages mm. at my university. And my coming from, you know, uh, Western North Carolina, which is uh, predominantly white, um, and I had grown up in sort of the, the racial mix that sort of defines a lot of the South, like mm. white folks, uh, quite a number of poor black folks, 
um, and a, 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 a smattering of sort of Hispanic folks. And that sort of had been my experience in um, both middle school and high school. And so my impressions of these languages and these cultures were predominantly based off of the white people around me who were interested in these things or these mm -hmm. cultures as depicted on like television. So my impression of China was very much rooted in like uh, Chinese buffets um, and like the, that being my, my, my main avenue of sort of understanding China was Chinese buffets. My main avenue for understanding Japanese was like manga kids and like Dragon Ball Z and, you know, very, very sort of like superficial things. And I knew that I didn't want to be one of the anime kids. I didn't mm -hmm. want to be one of the like kids that bought a samurai sword and like wore their hair really long and like <laughs> kind of like, like an emo, like emo sort of samurai kid. Um, and so China had this sort of appeal of being both practical, like people were like, oh, yes, China, that's that, there's this sense of it being a rising power, even though it was pretty nascent and, and it's mm. at that time. I mean, I guess it had been opening for a while, but wasn't really in the American consciousness yet. Mm. Um, and Japan, um, I think, had felt like its heyday was in the 80s and 90s. It didn't feel like it was that sort of next cool thing. Mm. And it was Chinese, everyone said Chinese was super hard. So it had that appeal of like being able, being somebody who does hard things, being somebody who take that, like chooses the not, not easy way out. Any reflections there? Any parallels? Uh, I think you took up all the space for reflection because I was just an 18 year old who was like, man, I don't want to do this whole romance language thing and like, let's just choose one. I mean, I actually think more about the, I almost chose Swedish um, very intentionally because, um, so basically at school, we had this, uh, this uh, advising program where your first, one of your first or second semester teachers would also be your advisor. And they also matched you with a student advisor too. So it's really cool kind of thing to help you navigate, you know, your first year and um, get you going. And uh, I remember, you know, the Swedish language teacher was a dude and the, uh, sorry, the Swedish language teacher was a woman and the Swedish literature, the Scandinavian literature teacher was a dude. And I was like, wow, wouldn't it be interesting? And they were married. And I said, wouldn't it be interesting to like get one of them as my advisors? And like, I could see like behind the scenes what it's like for, uh, you know, husband and wife duo to kind of like work together. And I think like when I grow up, like I want to work with my wife and that would be pretty sweet. Uh, so yeah, I remember very specifically thinking about that with Swedish. And then for some reason I didn't choose that and I kind of just randomly chose Chinese. And I think it was just, I just, maybe I thought it was the weirdest and I went for it and it changed my life. Oh yeah, can I ask a bit more about that? So then from there, how, what was the journey from learning Chinese in school to ending up in China and going deep into the culture there? Yeah, I mean, I think first it was just being a really shitty student um, and the worst in my class and going to my teacher, you know, a few weeks in saying, look, I'm really trying hard here. Um, I'm struggling. Um, you can tell of all these other people that are in this class that I'm the worst one. Um, is there any way, and also I'm an athlete, so I actually can't come to your office hours. Is there any way that there's another time that I could come? Because I really, really want to get school off, you know, on the right foot and I want to try to be better at this. And I kind of, you know, effed up my previous experience with French. Um, so what do you think? And she said, sure, come to see me at two o'clock on Wednesdays. And uh, she saw me every Wednesday at two, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour until I had to run to practice. And was absolutely amazing. And I think it's because of her care and concern. And um, I don't know if you feel about this way about Chinese teachers that you've had, Brian, but, um, or any language teachers that you may have had, Jay, but Chinese teachers, they have this awesome mix of being really in intense, but also like being really cool. And it's this, I'm going to kick your butt in the classroom and like help you like make sure that you go all the way that you can. But I'm also, you know, we're going to like drink beer on like the weekend and it's going to be like really funny too. And I think I had that kind of experience with a lot of different teachers, um, specifically Chinese teachers that just really wowed me. But with her and particularly Hulashi, um, we were coming close to uh, winter break and she's like, my Chinese name, uh, you know, you're working really hard at this Chinese thing and I, and I see all the work that you're putting in, um, but you're still really not that good. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, 
And uh, she, you know, I, I really think that you should uh, you should consider maybe going to China, um, you know, like over the summer or something. And I was like, okay, I don't know if you know this, Hulasher, but um, China's pretty far away. She's like, yeah, uh, I know, but you know, it would really suck if like you went kind of like for the rest of your college career and you like sucked at Chinese, right? I was like, okay, touche. Um, and really it was, it was her, it was my parents uh, who were both super supportive of me and, you know, kind of pushed me to do it. That was the summer of 2001. Um, and it totally changed my life. You know, I went to China. Um, I had this incredible experience. Um, I came back to America, experienced extreme culture shock uh, and kind of realized that people were just asking this like weird stuff and so yeah, I just I basically just, just decided elaborate a bit. Uh, when you first went there, what was your connection? What were you doing there? So I went there to study language specifically, um, and I was Where there for two you? months. Uh, I was at uh, Beishida at um, oh. Capital Normal. Or sorry, um, Shoshida, uh, Capital Normal University. So mm-hmm. it's like on the uh, west third ringish road kind of area in the middle. Uh, and, Beijing, uh, just for the audience. Uh, yeah, sorry, of uh, Beijing. So like in between second and third ring. And uh, yeah, it was this, you know, crazy sort of experience. Um, it so was the... What, what was the initial experience like? Did people uh, welcome you? Because when you probably, when you went there, your Chinese, your Mandarin probably wasn't great. Was Terrible. Was to make friends and were you feeling, feeling ostracized or did you find a community? No. Yeah. So I think the benefit of going there to learn language and the benefit of being a part of a group of people who was also dedicated to learning language um, is that you kind of had a posse, you had a crew, you know, already who was sort of aligned around the thing. And it was really funny. Um, you know, I had, uh, you know, I'd been to Canada once in eighth grade before that, but otherwise I had not been to anywhere uh, nearly as far away. And, uh, you know, so fly to Chicago and uh, we end up getting on the plane and, you know, we have, hours that we're sitting on the plane and it gets really hot and all this stuff and anyways electrical problems we don't end up flying so we um stay overnight they give us vouchers um you know all this kind of stuff but i happen to be sitting next to one of my future classmates mm-hmm. and there are a few others that were there too and so anyways we, you know we get a, we get to beijing a day late and uh we had to find our own way to the place that we were staying. And of course, none of us really speak Chinese. Um, the one sitting next to me um, was trying to study on the plane. And I was like, dude, why are you trying to study on the plane? Like the assessment is to help figure out where you are, not like you can't like game the assessment. Like <laughs> either you're like good or like you're not good. And you know, 12 hours of flying is not gonna change that. But so we figured out how to get there. And that crew, I think together was just, it was just a lot of fun. We ended up playing a lot of mafia we played a lot of Egyptian rat screw that summer. Um, 2001 was the year that they announced the Olympics being in Beijing. So that was like really kind of exciting, pretty cool. Um, I think in general, I found that people were really nice. Um, people were really curious, people were really interested. And I was kind of surprised by that. Um, I was really struggling to speak at all. It was the kind of situation where you speak to other people and then when they speak back to you, you smile and nod and hope you can understand something that they might be saying maybe. Yeah. Um, And it was the first time in my life that I really could sit my butt in a chair and study for hours and hours and hours on end because I wanted to try to really be able to communicate. So that was actually a big, um, big takeaway for me. And your most, I guess that was, you said that was 2001, is that right? Mm -hmm. And your most recent trip there, I guess you came back in January this year from China? Yeah. So yeah, I've been living there since, again, since 2015. And so just if we just think back to the kind of the visuals of China in 2001, like mm. impressions of what life was like, what, what the streets looked like, what people looked like, what would you say are the biggest transformations that you've observed in almost, I can say almost 20 years now of being uh, kind of an observer of this place and this culture? Yeah. Close. The clothes that people wear are different, um, more chic, I suppose, or more, um, you know, particularly, I think, when you're talking about big cities. I mean, and of course, there's a big difference between, you know, what are we, what are we seeing and what are we experiencing when we're in a big city and what are we experiencing when we're out in the, um, in the different tiers of cities or in the villages, um, one of which I lived in for a couple of years. Um, 
I think another thing is the uh, the sound. I think back to like sounds on the street. So, uh, like CD, VCD um, shops. Like I had never heard of a VCD uh, before I went to China, and uh, you know, just blaring out of these windows. So, what I thought was really kind of cool was there was like songs of the moment. So it's almost like the radio, you know, like you would experience in a, in a place like America. Um, and like, there are these songs that, you know, you're perpetually hearing on the radio. But when you go to China, it's like, oh, well, you're like biking around on your bike and you're like hearing these like songs blast out loud. And uh, and that was true in 2001. That was true, I think, for, you know, a number of years, um, you know, after I moved there in 2004. Uh, but that was definitely something too. Um, you think that has gone down now? Are shops more like, professional and not really blasting things out under the walkway. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember the last time that I, that I heard the, uh, the song du jour, um, mm -hmm. you know, from, I mean, I literally can't remember like when was the last, when did that stop? I don't know. Did it stop around the Olympics? Maybe, maybe a little bit before the Olympics. Was it after that? I, um, well, do you think that sort of reflects the maturity sort of the you know cosmopolitan maturity of their urban culture because i know uh, when i travel through brazil you know mm. there are parts of brazil that are modern like alpha city right like sao paulo there are places where which are trend setting right but a few cities away there are like carts with speakers blasting the loudest political song mm -hmm. and you're know, like wow this is still a developing country but mm -hmm. on a huge continuum even within the country well just to be clear i'm talking about pop songs right now not yeah. uh, not political songs yeah but um yeah i mean that's that's an interesting uh interesting observation and perspective uh i think maybe that could be true you know maybe as people because and also too maybe that's not necessarily the people who are themselves that are choosing it it's maybe more of people who are curating the city um you know and beijing is certainly a very curated city today and you know, that's true of in, in recent years, um, a lot of things look more uniform. I mean, Brian can probably attest to this in his visit last year, but um, you know, just seeing how the city has changed because now instead of things being a bit more of a hodgepodge, it's a bit more of a streets look like this. Mm -hmm. And these streets are not necessarily neighborhood by neighborhood look like this, but it's across the city, they may look very similar to each other. And that's quite a uh, that's quite a big change, uh, I think. Um, and some people are into that, and other people aren't. And you know, just like any big city, you're, you're never you're going to get the people who are into it and the people who are dissenters. And um, it's just we're just moving forward in these urban experiments that are these major cities in the world. I think a lot of people from I guess our era in Beijing, and I'll, I'll maybe that's sort of like the early two thousands. Um, kind of up until Xi Jinping or the first couple of years of Xi Jinping's uh, rise, but also in the late Hu Jintao period. Um, a lot of people kind of like have this degree of nostalgia for that time, a degree of uh, feeling like there was something special there. And I, you know, I can't tell whether that nostalgia is just completely self-serving as in it, it, it was the moment and the place when these people were there, therefore they sort of want to hark back to it, or whether there was something actually uh, different about that particular time. Um, something that actually was sort of lost um, in some objective measure. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you, when you think about that sort of increasing uniformity um, or that, that transition towards a more, a, a more uniform uh, version of Beijing, mm -hmm. do you think that there's something to, to lament there? Well, but isn't it both? So what do you mean? I mean, I think it's both, there's, there's both nostalgia. So, I mean, I think both are true. It's like, yeah, to one, and on one hand, it's, oh yeah, that was an awesome time. That was a great time. And right now there's like this group, uh, Beijingers Abroad, you know, that I think brings back a lot of that stuff from like these different times that people feel nostalgic for. And, you know, being a person who's lived there across these strange generations, let's say, you know, of 2004 until to today-ish with, with some breaks where I lived in Yunnan province, which is, you know, down in the Southwest. And when I was back in America for a couple of years, it's, you know, I think the way that I often describe it is like, I still love this energy about Beijing because I actually think it still has really amazing energy. And it's just, how do you choose to look at that energy? And, 
yeah, the energy of me as a 25 year old versus me as a 35 year old is, you know, a little bit different. Um, but it's also stuff that I really like and appreciate. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't know what it'll feel like now when it goes back, but, you know, even still up until I left, um, you know, to come back to the U S for Christmas, um, to spend some extended time with my family, uh, I still felt like it had this amazing vibe, you know, a, a city like no other in the world where you have Chinese people from all over China and you have foreigners all over the world who come together at, you know, the drop, you know, very, very short notice to do really fun, interesting, creative types of things. Um, and I think that was true then. And I think it's true. It was true, you know, in my most recent experience. And um, if you have, if you, are willing to find the kind of people that are willing to do those kinds of things. I think you can. And I think Beijing is, you know, a place where that has been true throughout my existence there. So what brings you back to the U S now? And. Oh, you know, everybody, like everybody, COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> you feel like you're going to go as soon as it's possible. So, um, the past few years, so I, I mentioned I kind of had a couple of different stints in China. So 2004 to 2011, I lived in Beijing for about seven years. I lived in Yunnan province, which is kind of like the Arizona of China. Mm -hmm. um, meaning if you look at a map of China and you look at a map of the US, they're about the same size. Yunnan is in the place where Arizona would be. That said, it's about the size of California. And also culturally like, identical, right? Like culturally. <laughs> yeah. Good joke. Yeah, right. right not yeah, not exactly yeah. culturally identical. <laughs> but, you know, when you look at a place like California, which I think is very diverse in terms of its topography, its geography, as well as the people, um, I think that's where an interesting comparison, you know, can come into. But basically, for those who don't know about Yunnan province, um, uh, China has 56 nat national cultural groups. Uh, and uh, 20, oh, what is it, 25 or 26 of them live in Yunnan. And that means that um, 93 or 94% is Han, which is like the, when you look at a Chinese person, you're like, I see this Chinese person, like that's generally kind of like what they look like. And then the other sort of uh, six to 7% is split amongst these 55. And it's a very complicated, you know, way that people went about classifying who these people are and how they break down to these different groups. But basically, um, half of them live in this one particular province, which um, is very close to, to Thailand and Vietnam and Laos. And, um, you know, it also borders Sichuan province. It also borders um, Tibet. So you have the Tibetan plateau on the top and you have Southeast Asia on the bottom and then a lot of interesting stuff in between. So I've lived here for a couple of years. I continue to do bike rides in this place um, on a yearly basis. Um, yeah, so I was out there, but then I came back to America um, I was here for a couple of years, and then I went back in 2015, um, a little bit unexpectedly. I didn't imagine that that was really going to happen. Um, and then I've been there for the past, you know, from then to then. And basically what I decided um, when I came back for Christmas that year, um, end of 2015, was that I wanted to spend a little bit more time with my parents because, you know, we're all getting older. And if I could just spend a little more time with them, I've lived away for a long time, maybe this Christmas Chinese New Year period was a really good time to be able to do that. Um, so this year is another example of me doing that. And uh, COVID came on and that started to adjust plans. And so your time with your parents has been very extended, unexpectedly. Extended quality time with the people yeah. who gave me life. So it's been, it's, it's been interesting. Yeah. When you uh, think of your uh, I guess your life and your identity kind of bouncing between these two countries over the last decade, I mean, almost mm. two decades. Um, what, what sort of, what sort of hat do you wear? Do you think of yourself as sort of like, um, I guess sort of what archetype do you think you're kind of representing? So, and I, I always, I play in archetypes a little bit. So, cause I, I think I've, I've somehow determined that my archetypes are like big percent Southern hippie, um, mm. big percent like tech bro as being a technologist and somebody who studied science and things like that. And then like uh, uh, also like a percentage of like uh, international man of mystery or some, mm -hmm. something like that, right? Like somebody who's interested in, has spent time abroad, lived abroad, studied foreign languages and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
and you know different parts of my life have brought out different parts of my of my identity or kind of grown those parts of my identity um mm-hmm. what do you think your makeup would be how do you how do you sort of think of yourself what are your mm-hmm. what are your core components Wait, so uh, I want to throw this question to Jay real quick first. So Jay, we don't know each other before this conversation and uh, hit me with a couple of archetypes. Like what do you, what archetypes strike you when you experience me in these first, you know, moments of our meeting? Um, I would say uh, like well-measured in like the things you do and the words that you deliver. So good thought process rather than being like reactive in that. And um, so what would be the archetype there, Jay? Like a, mm, like a, a communications guru? Yeah, I think so. Cause you could- Oh, come on. Just let, why don't you let him talk first? You can have your piece after Brian, you know, like <laughs> this guy always, always interrupting. Yeah. No, not, not well measured. Yeah. <laughs> Anti, anti, yeah, tech. <laughs> yeah. This is what all tech bros do, don't they? Damn. Right. Uh, no, yeah. but keep going, Jack. Keep going. I think that, and um, so, and also that the doggedness, you know, the the determinedness. So, mm-hmm. how does because you know if you want the push to drive, the, the drive to sort of learn Chinese, even when it was a struggle. And then, you know, I know living abroad, there are all positives of the expat life, but it's also pretty rough sometimes. So to be able to, you know, we're just going to put through with this because there are good times ahead. And that takes a certain kind of doggedness, you know, um, but uh, I'm not familiar with what sort of archetype that would, that would fall under. But um, yeah, that's what I've seen so far. So, cool. Man. Yeah, thanks for sharing. So Brian, a uh, uh, master of archetypes, um, why don't you uh, hit us with a couple of archetypes that you? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously communications guru, um, but also, yeah, I think Jay's onto something as well. There's there's a uh, a drive there, and I'm not that communications gurus don't have drive, but like that that's sort of I feel like another kind of vector of you, um, which uh, and maybe it's the athlete. Mm-hmm. It's like the athlete in you. Um, what sport were you doing then? What do you, if you're just to look at me and judge me, you know, what do you, what do you think? Track and field. He's good. He's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was a middle distance runner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 1500 meters. Uh, 800. Yeah. 15 in college. Um, a little bit. You know, um, I basically, I, I was, uh, I was, very, very good in high school. Um, let's say I was the bottom of the best in the country in high school. Oh, very. So like not, you know, like, Ooh, awesome. But like, like when there's like a list of like a hundred people, I'm like 99, you know, or something like that. Or, or probably, awesome. I mean, maybe, but maybe like 499. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really sure, but like I was on the bottom of whatever that list was. And then, um, yeah, when I went to school, I just, you know, I didn't do so well. I, uh, I only um, Im- improved my PR by a little, little bit, um, but definitely very glad that I did that because I think that being a middle distance runner, I mean, it's funny that you bring out this, you, you mentioned this doggedness and then you mentioned, you know, the, the athlete thing and all that stuff is I think the two things, um, you know, that I'm very proud of early in my life that have set me up to do things better is being an eight, 800 meter runner loving hills, loving that intensity of what it means to be a middle distance runner. Mm -hmm. And then also kind of like you mentioned with language for yourself, Brian, is loving the intensity of Chinese language, being like, this is hard. And, but then also I think when you come out the other side of it, you realize that learning Chinese actually isn't that hard. It's just, we think it is because when we look at the characters and we think about the pronunciation and all these things, you know, the activation energy to like get there is higher, but actually when it comes down to it, you know, when you come out the other side, you're like, wow, you know, this is so, there's so much beauty in the simplicity of it. And the fact that it doesn't have grammar and it doesn't have all these other things. And it's very flexible actually. Um, I think it's just something that's so cool about Chinese. Um, so yeah, that's sort of like initial activation energy to kind of get over that hump to really say it's okay. It's just a bunch of characters. It's just a bunch of different things that we're going to learn how to say. And then 
um, yeah, yeah, push really hard and get there. Can, can you sort of compare that with maybe you saw Chinese people trying to learn English? And, um, you know, I feel like, you know, so I just spent two weeks with um, sort of my niece-in-laws, you know, three mm. and six, learning English, asking questions about English. And I'm sort mm. of, you know, I just told this six-year-old, I'm like, oh, you're going to find out English is a messed up language. You know, it, it doesn't follow rules. There's so many exceptions, so much context must be known. It borrows heavily from, you know, romance languages and other branches of, you know, family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the language families, whereas it seems like Chinese seems to follow a lot more order and mm-hmm. like a lot more rationale and even even Spanish, I think, you know, it's easier to learn Spanish than it is English. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so if you could convey in that, because I mean, sort of ex- expound a bit on that, why, you know, I mean, people around the world are all learning English. They're mm-hmm. learning it pretty fast, maybe because it's just around everywhere. TV mm-hmm. programs, movies, songs, and maybe if we listen to more of Chinese, you know, soft culture, and um, more people think, oh, I could pick that up. Oh, mm-hmm. okay, do that. Do you think that has some reason to do on how, even though English is such a hard language to learn, many people are learning it pretty quickly? Mm-hmm. So what I actually think, you know, um, before a few weeks ago, which actually is something that I learned at 3PW, uh, I would have said that I think English is harder than Chinese mm. uh, because of the irregularity and all these kinds of things. And I think one of the biggest reasons why I struggled with French is, of course, the irregularity of certain things, too, and the, the grammatical structures. Uh, and just I think that was very hard for me. Um, of course, it could have been I didn't have the kind of dedication that I had with Chinese um, and I didn't take the intensity I didn't bring the intensity to French that I did with Chinese in the same kind of way. Uh, so, you know, part of me actually empathizes a lot with Chinese people who study, who learn English because they learn it so young. And so I feel like their English is like my French for some, for some people, like the general part of the population. Um, but the thing that kind of switched my mind a little bit around was a few weeks ago at 3PW, uh, a friend was sharing about how they're doing this new language program and how the language so their understanding of of learning languages and you know the stuff that they've seen through different research is that all languages are relatively equal in terms of degree of difficulty and that kind of blew my mind i mean we might want to look for a reference on that um because i don't know if i 100 percent believe that yet because you know what i have been told or what i've experienced or kind of the the general um understanding that we all have as people and learning languages but yeah he was basically saying that we put up these boundaries to language learning and if we just practiced and we found you know the right way to practice that actually we could do it with relative ease and of course everybody's created differently everybody learns differently there's a lot of caveats to that but on the whole that it would be possible and that no one language is necessarily harder than the other yeah I'm, I, I remember hearing that as well and, and feeling quite skeptical about that because it's mm-hmm. somewhat contrary to my lived experience as, as well as I think a lot of intuition. Mm-hmm. My take, like, it seems that like China, obviously the huge challenge of Chinese, I think a lot of things you mentioned are right of like, um, you know, the, the lack of grammatical complexity, relatively simple grammar system mm-hmm. um, is one of the things that makes it so feel so natural for english speakers because mm-hmm. you know the the ordering of things is also the same subject verb object um in most cases and that makes things a lot easier as well but the characters you know the writing system is just such a huge like cognitive effort to become mm-hmm. super proficient with it and that's just like a like basically that's just a sunk cost. Like you must pay this, act, uh, you're talking about activation energy. The yeah. activation energy to memorize 4,000 distinct characters is immense. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, and then you have vocab that you have to build out of those different components. But um, I think that the writing system is just something that at least to me seems objectively more difficult than any system with an alphabet, any system that's like based on sounds. Um, and that's, you know, that applies for syllabaries, like what you have in Korean, um, of course, all the romance languages, but, you know, even probably uh, 
like languages that were originally not written down, but then later written down by translator, translators and things like that, probably are easier to learn as a result of having sort of a, a systemic representation of pronunciation and things like that. So mm -hmm. that's at least my take. I was, I was pretty skeptical of that. Um, and also like, there's so many more cognates in Spanish. Like even if you, even <laughs> if the grammar is, I think the grammar of Spanish grammar is actually much harder than Chinese. And I think that's, that's not controversial, but mm -hmm. like, like the word for idea is idea, right? Mm. Like, like that's a really, that's, it's spelled the same. Like mm. it's, uh, it's, you know, from that perspective, I think some sort of linguistic closeness has, has some Im impact on it. Mm -hmm. um, I was curious if we could uh, uh, kind of uh, pivot a little bit in, into talking um, a little bit about how in the midst of this journey, this sort of intercultural journey, um, you found yourself being a person who wanted to create space for communication about mm. balance. Like where did this idea come from? Failed relationship. Mm. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah. So basically I, uh, I moved back to America to be with a special lady uh, and we had been in a long distance relationship. Um, you know, for about two years prior to that. And when I came back, it was a, it was a pretty hard transition, I think. And uh, yeah, quite difficult. So again, it was a, a different kind of reverse culture shock, I think, because going back and forth actually as a traveler in, in America, you know, wasn't you know, you know, quite easy, I think. Um, and I guess that's a little bit of how it felt because, you know, when you spend most of your time in one place versus another, even if it's your home, um, but in this case, I was coming back home, but it was weird and it was, it was difficult because I had left, you know, my work, I had left my friends, I, you know, I left like all of the things that I kind of built over the past nine years. Um, and I think stepping into somebody else's world was pretty hard. And I think it was hard on both of us. Um, and I don't think we were, and this is a lot of, you know, good hindsight, um, this 2020 kind of stuff, but, you know, we weren't really able to talk to each other about this kind of stuff in ways that the other person was able to understand and maybe hear. Um, so that was, that was tough. And I think, you know, as we were coming kind of the end of that relationship, the biggest question that I had in my mind was, you know, why is it that I can talk to pretty much anyone about anything except for the person I'm supposed to be closest to? Yeah. And so, a little bit after kind of our, our relationship was over, um, I was in a kind of a tough spot. And, you know, of course, everybody's always asking you, what do you do? Uh, and here I'm just thinking like, well, uh, I'm depressed. I got dumped and I don't have a job. So what do you want from me? <laughs> I don't got anything to say to you. Um, but instead of doing that, um, and maybe this is my doggedness or I don't know, something else, but I was just like, look, I just want to make this more fun for me and more interesting. And I'm just going to start saying I do this 10 minute conversation experiment thing. And hey, do you want to try? Because fo focusing on somebody else's thing, whatever that is, if it was a big thing or a small thing or a professional thing or a personal thing or whatever time trajectory it was, like, let me just focus on you because I don't have to focus on me. Mm. And then I think in the process of, of focusing on so many other people, not only is it really validating to help them, think about something that matters to them. Uh, you know, the other thing is that it really helped me ask a lot of questions that I probably could have asked myself, but didn't because I didn't have the context to do that. But of course, when you're asking somebody else about their thing, you're like, oh yeah, actually, that's a good question. Maybe I should think about that for me. So that's kind of how it started. And um, it really was just an experiment. And then I did it a couple hundred times and I thought, oh, there's kind of like a cadence to this. So maybe this is like a thing. And what is it? And if you don't, what's the, define it, I guess. What is it? What, what is bounce? Yeah. So uh, now it's a, well, how do you, how do you define it? You go first again, because you've experienced it. Well, uh, uh, let's see. It's a opportunity for somebody to talk about something that's on their mind, basically mm -hmm. as a monologue for mm -hmm. a few minutes. Then the counterpart asks clarifying questions. Uh, and then there's an, another follow-up a uh, couple of minutes and then there's a reflection on the overall sort of 
content of the conversation, whether that, in, I guess, drew, drew clarity around something. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. So, so basically the way that I describe it is it's a 20 minute conversation with two people who have very distinct roles. Uh, one is the bouncer. The bouncer brings a situation that's on their mind, you know, professional thing, personal thing, big thing, small thing. Uh, and they start with a sentence. And this has kind of evolved over time. So it started in the beginning of just letting people share. Um, and it kind of moved down because of very specific things that happened that was like, oh, maybe it's not a good idea to do it like that anymore. Um, so, so yeah, so it starts with the first sentence. Um, and then basically it's just around the hearing, noticing and wondering, um, you know, people. So by channeling your curiosity, um, asking questions to this other person based on what they're saying to you in this moment, uh, you know, then get to 10 minutes. There's a couple of questions at the midpoint mark just to kind of see where we are and make sure we're on the good course. Um, and then, yeah, going into the end, continuing to channel that curiosity with the, with the goal of having a bit more clarity and then deciding what's going to be the next step. You know, so we've talked about this thing now for, you know, this period of time. What do you want to do? So if we can build some clarity in there, we can build momentum and we can decide when I walk away from this conversation, I can do this. Or when I walk, from this when I walk away from this conversation, the next time something happens connected to what we were talking about, this is what I'm going to try. So that's the goal. So is this a form of like group therapy in a way? So I usually stay away from words like therapy because I think some people are allergic. Yeah. Um, and my hope and my goal licensing is that- Licensing and all that. What's that? And there's, and there's things to do with licensing and all confusion about if you're a psychiatrist or not. So I see. Absolutely. Because I think that, yeah, some people are, are just like, I don't want to go near therapy with a 10 foot pole. And I get that. Um, I was one of those people uh, until I went. Uh, and I think also, I just realized, you know, when, when you look at the, there's about 10 different human development frameworks that are like therapy, you know, psychiatry and psychology and mentoring and coaching and spiritual gurus and, you know, mm -hmm. teacher, like, there's like 10 of these things. And basically what I think they what all connects them is great listeners who ask good questions. The best ones mm -hmm. are great listeners who ask good questions um, and really help the other person find their way. And so I just thought, well, what if normal people could do that for other normal people? And what would our world look like if we were better listeners who asked better questions? Mm -hmm. And if we could find a way to do something like that, I think that we would be living in a, more peaceful, more prosperous, prosperous, more just place. And, you know, this could be a, a cool way to try that because you don't need to have a PhD to, you know, do these kinds of things. You don't need to be an expert to be empathetic. And um, yeah. If you were going to uh, be the bouncer right now for your own session, Mm -hmm. What do you think your, where would your starting point be? What would be your, your statement, your, your starting, starting sentence? Oh, good question. Um, the other important thing about bounce is that you have to have something that you really want to talk about. Um, I did, I, so I, I had a bounce conversation two days ago, actually. Um, and um, so I don't have one right in this moment, but what I did speak about the other day was, uh, and we don't need to mention any names here, but there's a, uh, there's a platform uh, that is very crucial to my life. Uh, that is, um, there's a lot of talk about it in the news. And if that platform was to no longer be around, um, it would both cut off part of my uh, livelihood, both my financial lifeline and my social connection lifeline. Um, or parts of it, of course, not the whole whole deal, but um, yeah. So I, I talked about that because I hadn't, it was kind of like swimming around in my mind, but I didn't really give any time to think about it. And, you know, it wasn't something that was crippling me, but it was just something that was kind of there. And it was like, okay, I want to talk about this. And I had a balanced conversation exchange with somebody where I was, you know, a great listener asking them good questions. And then they returned the favor for me. And um, it was great. I walked away feeling really good. What was your action item? 
Um, so, well, so the two things that you ask about is, is like, you know, your biggest takeaway from the conversation. My biggest takeaway from the conversation was actually laughing about the situation because, and I did it twice in the first 10 minutes because I realized that I was doing the same kind of thing in another place for the same kind of potential issue. And also realizing just how funny that was and then how it was like giving me some like potential bad energy. And I was like, but I've done this before. <laughs> like, is, there, uh, is there a reason to not mention it? We could, we could say what the platform yeah. is. Uh, what I, well, yeah, we can, we if chat. you want to. Yeah. We chat. Yeah. We yeah. chat. Yeah. So, um, so my, my next step was to, um, basically just um, talk to a few people who'd be in a similar situation as me and also to uh, think about a message that I might want to send to all my WeChat friends um, to say, hey, what's your favorite place to connect that's not WeChat? Because if this really happens, then, you know, let's do that there. Yeah, I'm thinking um, it might be easier. You just send them like a link to your, say, line or mm. WhatsApp number. I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm on here. If you can, you know, get this app. I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. what this guy is doing is he's going to disrupt so much communication between. There's a lot of communication largest. disruption. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I yeah. can imagine. But no, no, you're right. Exactly. I mean, it's, I think you're right. It's a lot of, but then also too, I mean, again, you know, coming back to kind of like the funny part is that on the other side of the world, there are also some things that, um, aren't really as easily accessible. And, um, you know, sometimes it's finding a different way to do that, or it's finding a different way to communicate or, um, you know, I think one of the, the greatest things that living in China has taught me is that um, it's not about the way, it's just about a way. Mm. Very pragmatic. Is that sort of the yeah. underlying theme there? Because I think, you know, America, for, you know, my impression, my, my perspective is that America sometimes is about the way, like this is the way we do it. Yep. And if we don't do it this way, then that's wrong. Yeah. And that's just not exactly the experience that I see in China. It's just, oh, we can't do it that way. Well, we still got to do it. So we're just going to have to find a way to do that mm -hmm. because that's what we do. And I think there's a lot of creativity and innovation and... Um, inspiration actually that I draw from a lot of that and um, yeah that's one of the things that I think is really um, for me one of the things that I admire about many of the people that I've met and observed um, you know during my time there. Well can I uh, so you know there was a thought I heard recently where um, like a philosopher in AI research was saying how you know the division in America now seems sort of irreparable almost, mm. you know, no matter who wins in November, there's still going to be so much division and strife. Mm. And he was even saying, you know, America's going to have to sort of reinvent itself, mm. you know, has its way sort of, um, you know, it's not, it's not right for the time sort of anymore. You know, mm -hmm. it was good in the 1800s to sort of push <laughs> the American way, you know, to conquer such a large country and then become an imperial force. But, it's time to adapt, sort of, you know, times are changing and moving very fast. And if you still want to do things the way, mm -hmm. it just, it puts up friction. Mm -hmm. So I felt that was pretty interesting and hard to imagine how we could get from today to sort of a reinvented American culture. But um, yeah. I don't know if you have any views on that, on how it sort of ties into what you're seeing with how, you know, Chinese culture is this old and ancient long tradition but also mm -hmm. things in China right now, culture today in China is sort of extremely advanced, way more advanced probably than mm -hmm. what we're experiencing in the West. Life has moved on mm -hmm. completely to cashless society where that seems so far away still in the US. Mm -hmm. So do you think America is so, going to have to sort of reinvent or catch up to the kind of innovations that are happening in China right now? Or do we have something different here? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really interesting question. Super complicated, of course. Uh, I guess the way that I think about it is there are certain things that China is doing that's totally putting America to shame. Um, and I think the most difficult thing for me is 
American complacency. You know, feeling like we got it pretty good, so we'll just kind of keep it like this. And um, I don't um, see as much innovation, you know, here. And I mean, which is, again, is not to say that there's not innovative people and there's not people who are doing really cool and very cutting edge things. But if we look at ourselves as a country, um, it's just a lot of people who seem to be really angry with each other um, and haven't found a way to talk to each other about the stuff that matters. Um, and do you feel, I guess, I do think that kind of the, um, the conflict on social media, that sort of, that level of conflict is something that's very like, I don't know if it's uniquely American, but it's something that we're definitely dealing with in a very special way now. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are you sort of skeptical of, I guess, about China? Like if, I think a lot of people, I think maybe, maybe even like the popular conventional wisdom right now is that, um, China's beating us at this, beating us at that. And that's something that I think both political sides kind of play up uh, as a way to kind of win their faction and win their votes. And, mm-hmm. But I guess living there and seeing these transitions, are there things, are there cracks in this, in this image that you worry about or that you think that Chinese people worry about? What's your take on that right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we all have cracks, right? So, um, you know, definitely uh, cracks and flaws. Um, I think AI is maybe an interesting way to look at this. So uh, things are full steam ahead, you know, for AI in China. And things are at a more measured pace, you know, for AI in America. And, you know, I think you you both brought this up on a previous podcast as well of just where are we going to go? Um, and I think Jay, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, you're feeling relatively positive about it. I think Brian, you were a little bit uh, pessimistic about it. And I think maybe that also is like a little bit of a representation of what's happening here with China full speed ahead. You know, we're just going to do it. We're going to make it happen. We're going to see how it goes and however the chips fall, we'll like deal with it when it gets there. Um, and this seems like the kind of thing that maybe having a more measured approach is kind of important because if we let it get too out of control, then that could lead to some unintended consequences that would be really difficult to clean up. So um, that is, you know, something to potentially be a little bit um, concerned about. I mean, I think probably these things around 5G or, you know, I I believe China is pushing forward with 6G now. Um, So, you know, the 5G world is kind of disconcerting in a way because it's like, oh, is there going to be any place that I can go in my, my world anymore that won't be connected? You know, is there any way that I can just be by myself? Is there any way that, you know, the atmosphere is going to pick up my thoughts and feelings and I can't have them for my own because, you know, none of us are ever always perfect. And if we don't have a place to process or to to find a way to be incorrect and to say the wrong things and to uh, work it out so we can get to a better spot, like, you know, does does 5G mean the end of failure? So like, you know, I think about those kinds of things. And as we like push those sort of like technological stuff, like, um, you know, it is a place like, you know, China pushing forward at breakneck pace and therefore, um, you know, by not being in touch with one's emotions, we're not going to be able to figure that out. Um, I mean, we have enough hard times, you know, dealing with these kinds of things as it is, um, you know, but tech is a manifestation of more of who we it exacerbates who we already are, you know, and if we aren't balanced as individuals, then that's going to make things a little bit more difficult for us in the future. So maybe that's an example of what I see as a potential crack. For me, it's really just about communication because when I thought, you know, and here, you know, as I'm kind of overcoming the challenges of, of, of the kind of culture shock that I was finally getting over the relationship that I was trying to get over the figuring out what I wanted to do with my life at that point, um, I thought about, you know, what is like the thing that connects this always following interest, you know, in my life, you know, where has that gotten me? What are, what are the threads through that? And I, it was communication, whatever job that I've done, whatever relationship that I've been in, you know, the biggest challenge that I experienced was around communication. And I think other people experience those things too. So, you know, I think the biggest miss that we have in our lives is not investing in being better communicators because if we invest in being better communicators i mean we're spending 
like 70% of our day communicating. And I mean, of course, that's just a random figure that I found in the internet. Um, so it may not be accurate, but, but think, but you know, if you actually think about it, like 70% of your day, you know, if you sleep eight hours a night, which none of us always, always do, but it's 11 hours, but it's probably not too off base. Think about what we're doing right now. Think about what we're just doing at 3PW. Think about what happens across the dinner table from the people that we live with. You know, what's ha- oh, and then we like hit our phones and we're like communicating with other people, you know, via whatever platform we use, you know, to try to say these things. And our work days, you know, because many of us are, uh, are knowledge workers, we're spending time communicating with people about stuff because we're either preparing something for them or we're actually communicating to them about the thing that we prepared for them or, you know, my work, which of course is, is about helping people to be better communicators. So it's, you know, people spend time to improve their diet. People spend time to, you know, make these like small optimizations to their lives. But because we all think we're pretty good communicators and that we don't really have much to improve on, that we don't do that. And of course, we all have to be ready for these types of things. And we have to come to that awareness on our own. Um, and I'm, a, I'm an asker of question, questions. You know, I've, I'm not on a podcast. I'm like speaking as much probably because I'm more interested in hearing somebody else's perspective as I've like asked you both, you know, at different times. I didn't do the avatar thing because, you know, I was more interested in what you had to say and we forgot about me, which is cool actually. But that's, I think, just an example of how I end up operating and but I really do believe, I think, that if we were to spend more time just to make small tweaks to what we spend, you know, a majority of our day doing, we improve, we get better, and we elevate the other people around us. And then all of a sudden, we're all getting a little bit better. And who's to say what could happen when that starts to happen? That's a beautiful message, Michael. Oh, love it. Uh, yeah, keeping your world small and doing what you can there. I think is some, I take, I take away from something on that. Um, and, that's what, and, and that's what Bounce is, is about too. It's finding the next step because as a great listener asking good questions, I'm not going to help you solve your problem um, or I'm not going to solve your problem for you, but I can help you think about what you want to do next to move yourself on the way to solve that problem. Uh, to uh, last question before we do um, uh, recommendations, um, where can people find you MCK? What, what's a, what's a good thing? What, what should people look for? Um, they can f- find me on the IG. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook. Um, I'm not always as social on as social as I, you know, it might be a good idea to be on social media. Um, but you know, I'm dabbling a little bit more working on it, but, um, yeah, if you type in MCK, uh, and Michael, you'll probably find me. Cool. But nobody calls me Michael. So if you call me Michael, you probably know that, you know, we haven't known each other as much lately. So we have this tradition you've probably seen of um, at the end of the show where uh, we go around and sort of um, just have a recommendation, either like some cultural uh, sort of project or book or movie or thought, idea or uh, anything that you sort of recommend for people to go check out. It could be related to what we've been talking about or totally unrelated as well. So uh, Brian, do you have something? Do you wanna go first? Yeah, Um, I've been beginning to read a book which I think is very much in tune with Bounce and 3BW and a lot of other communication modalities that uh, we've talked about before. And the book is Crucial Conversations. Um, And it's, it's about basically, I think maybe my chief takeaway thus far is being aware of the sort of the, the, the whether or not you are creating an environment of safety for whoever you're talking with um, through your language, but also through your body language and how to kind of get back to a point of safety. And the, the, the point being that like, it's in that environment of safe communication that the most progress can be made and the, mo- and the best decisions can result from mm-hmm. crucial conversations. It's been good. Awesome. Great. Um, so um, this time I'd like to recommend some, um, this, uh, this AI researcher who has a really brilliant way of sort of uh, putting ideas together to make you go, hmm, 
That's interesting. So his name is Joshua Bach. And uh, I think he's the head of the AI Foundation or something. And he's been at MIT, Harvard, all these places. But he was recently on uh, Lex Friedman's podcast, which is right now still called the Artificial Intelligence Podcast, but it covers so many different topics. And this, this researcher, you know, who ended up becoming an AI professor, grew up sort of in a, you know, hippie commune in Eastern Germany. And somehow that played such a fundamental role in having full, like, uh, he's, he's high on the creativity scale, he's high on the intelligence scale, he's high on the knowledge scale, and, but he's not high on the ego scale. You know, like his humility is really amazing for how accomplished he is and the thoughts he has. And I think he's written a bunch of books and it would just be interesting to know more about like how people like that think and put ideas together. So Mm. Joshua Bach, check him out. Cool. Uh, So mine is, I think if you can reach out to a person in your life um, and just Ask them if they have something that they'd like to sh- talk to talk about that maybe they haven't had a chance to talk about, and uh, just put a timer on it, twenty minutes. And um, you know, your goal is just to ask questions, um, be a great listener, ask some good questions. Um, it's not sort of bounce, you know, conversation framework, but it's just the idea that you're giving somebody else space. And if you want bonus points. Um, do it with somebody who maybe you always haven't had great communication with or have recently had a communication challenge with. And yeah, just to reach out to them and, um, you know, try to bridge the gap that maybe uh, was there before because of a little bit of unbalance. Thank you, MCK. Thank you for being on the heart of the matter. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.